Good afternoon. It's nice to see you all. Last week we left Galatians on a cliffhanger. I don't know if you remember. And uh, we're going to break in and read uh, from Galatians, uh, from verse 19 of chapter 3. It's on page 1170. And um, the reason I mention that is because it opens with a question. If you didn't know that we left it on a cliffhanger last week, that would be confusing, wouldn't it? Let's uh, break in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19. Paul writes, Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage... He's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Well, may God bless to us. 
the reading of his precious word. You know now that we're continuing our studies in Paul's letter to the Galatians. And in my reading this week, I came across one writer who suggested that this whole letter is basically asking one question. One question. And here it is. What time is it? It's a question we ask a lot of that, isn't it? When's it time for tea? <laughs> I ask that a lot anyway, I don't know about you. How long till my shift finishes? When does the shop open? If you've been looking after the kids all day, it might be, when will my husband get home from work? If you know me, you might well be thinking, what time will his sermon be done? (laughs) Paul is not talking here about that kind of day-to-day time. He is talking more about big picture historical time. Sometimes we joke, don't we? Or I do anyway, and I say, man, I'm so confused, I've no idea what day it is. Ever say that? But it seems like Paul thinks this is actually true for the Galatians. They literally don't know what day it is. In other words, they don't understand what part of history they're living in. They're living in the past rather than in the present awareness of all that Christ has done for them. Let me show you what I mean by pointing you to the end of the passage we just read and the end of Paul's argument here. This whole passage builds up, if you like, to verse 4 of chapter 4, where Paul He talks about these people being in slavery under the basic spiritual principles of this world. And then he says in verse 4, but when the set time had fully come, or at just the right time in history, or in the fullness of time, or at exactly the right moment, God sent his son. And the contrast Paul's making here in this whole argument is that before God sent his son, these Galatians were in a kind of slavery. And at the perfect moment in history, Christ came to break the chains of their slavery and bring them into a new kind of status and relationship. The coming of Christ meant that they'd been adopted as sons in the family of God. They were free. So what's the problem? The problem is that Paul is concerned that they don't know what day it is. They're going back and trying to live in the past as if Christ hadn't come. Even though they were in the family, they were living like slaves. Paul's writing to remind them what time it is in history. Let me give you a graphic 
for us to clarify what Paul is saying about history here. I hope we can get this online so that if people are listening to the talk, they can see this. Um, what time is it? That's the question. First of all, you know now that God promised salvation to the whole world through Abraham. Abraham didn't exactly know how God was going to fulfill that ultimate promise to the world, but he believed that God would do it. Last week, we saw that this promise from God to Abraham was totally free. The initiative for this promise comes from God. It was a good gift to Abraham from God. Abraham didn't buy it or earn it or even deserve it. And this promise would be fulfilled one day through Christ coming into the world to bless the whole world. That's the whole story of the Bible. I've just said earlier that we left last week on a bit of a cliffhanger, though, because in verse 19, Paul anticipates a problem. Because 400 years after God promised freely that he would save the world through Christ, God gives Ten Commandments to a man called Moses. And Paul's obvious question is, why? Why? The problem is that it looks like God has changed his mind. It looks like God has promised salvation for free and then 400 years later sent Abraham's descendants an invoice for it in the form of a test to pass. Is it free or is it not? I want to try and summarize Paul's argument here with two headings, first of all. And the first one is, the law, in Paul's argument here anyway, is inferior to the promise. Just look with me, verse 19 and 20 are really tight verses. I've been preparing this week, verse 19 and 20, it's almost like Paul is texting. Very tight language, curt language. It's hard to read between the lines. But I think it's safe to say that what Paul is trying to do is to show them that the law is different to the promise and inferior to the promise for at least four reasons. First of all, the promise came first and the law came later. That's obvious, isn't it? Secondly, the law was always intended by God to be a temporary provision. Look at verse 20. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed that is Christ, to whom the promise referred to, had come. So the law was given after the promise, and it was always intended to be temporary. That's why I've drawn it like this. The promise is the overarching theme. The law came later, and it ended sooner. Thirdly, the law and the promise were established differently. I don't want to dwell on this. The stuff about angels and mediators is really hard to understand. We haven't got time to get bogged down in that. But I think what Paul is saying is that the promise is better. Why? Because it was personal and clear and direct. God gave it to Abraham. They spoke together. It was simple and clear. 
When God gives the law through Moses, the Bible alludes to the fact that God gave the law through angels to Moses, who then gave it to the people. It's almost as if the bosses are doing a side agreement and trusting their deputies to write it. It's, it's almost like the law is established in an inferior way. It's like a kind of temporary side contract established by delegates rather than directly between, as it was, as the promise was between God and Abraham. Fourthly, the law and the promise operate on different principles, clearly. The promise was free. And it came to Abraham by God's kindness. But the law, the Ten Commandments, when we say the law, think Ten Commandments. These Ten Commandments are all about human performance. The promise depends on God. The law depends on humans. So Paul's question is, why then was the law given at all? (laughs) But as he answers his own question, it sounds to me like he's making it worse. So he asks the second question in verse 21. He's establishing that the law is inferior to the promise, but then he says, is the law then opposed to the promises of God? The law's different, it's inferior. You almost expect him to say that the law was a total waste of time. The way he asked the question in verse 21, you expect him to say, yes, of course the law is opposed to the promise. It's a completely different thing. But look with me at verse 21. Paul doesn't say yes. He says emphatically, forcefully, it says here in the NIV, absolutely not, with a big exclamation mark after it. So in other words, even though the law is different to and inferior to the promise, Moses and Abraham are not fighting with each other here. And neither is God confused or changing his mind. So what's happening? Well, here's a second heading. The law is inferior to the promise, but the law is designed to complement not to say you're a nice promise that's a different word to, to, to complement the promise how does that work then? well Paul has already given his biggest reason when he says in verse 19 that the law was added because of transgressions the word transgression is another word for human sin. It's as if the law is a line, and when you cross it, that's a transgression. The law was added because of transgressions. In other words, the main reason that the law was added later was because people break it. How does that help? Well, in the next few verses, Paul uses two very striking, I think, and and in some ways bizarre 
illustrations to make the function of history, that the law in history, clear. So first of all, Paul says that the law is like a prison. Verse 22, the scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. In verse 21, Paul says something very important. If a law had been given that could have imparted life, then righteousness would certainly have come by that law. The problem here is that we humans couldn't live up to it. The problem isn't the Ten Commandments. The problem is us. And Paul says that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. In verse 23, a little later, he talks about the law itself being the prison. In verse 22, the sin is the prison. In verse 23, he says, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up. So here's why the law complements the prophet, the, the, the promise. The law was never intended to be the way of salvation. The law was never intended to be the way that people would earn life from God. Rather, the law reveals the predicament that we're all in. The law traps us because of our inability to keep it. We have no key that can unlock that door and get us out. And it would be sad if that's where Paul finished, wouldn't it? But the second illustration Paul uses, and some of you all know this because you've got young children, is that the law is a babysitter. How about that? Where do we get that from? In verse 23, Paul says, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. Verse 24, So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. That word guardian, some translations say custodian. This was a word that would be used to describe the person who would tutor your kids when they were growing up. That's what the word guardian means, really, in the original. So this tutor would, it was their job to teach your kids manners. It was their job to prepare them for adult life when they got to their mid-teens. These two ideas go together, Paul says. The law was given to show us that we can't escape. And as a result, it was designed to point us, to hold us by the hand and lead us to the solution, which is the promise that was always there in the background, Christ the promise was always the way of salvation. The law that was given complements the promise 
by showing us how much we need it. So Paul says, the law and the promise are not contradicting one another. They have different functions in history. The law is there to show us how much we need Christ. I think we can understand now the answer to Paul's question. The scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The reason I've drawn this graphic like this is because when, when you look at that graphic and ask the question, what time is it? What we're meant to see is that the law didn't work. It could never have been attend, intended as a test for us to pass. It could never deliver that outcome because we don't have the ability, the capacity to keep it all. Let, let me give you four very quick reasons to, just to prove that. The law didn't work historically. God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses to give to his people, but even their own history shows that they couldn't live up to it. They repeatedly broke God's commandments until the nation divided and then each half got overrun by their enemies and taken off into exile, the law didn't bring life because they all failed to keep it. Secondly, it didn't work socially. One of the saddest things I think about this is the fact that having the law causes us to look down on other people who we think don't have it. The very law of God commanded his people to love one another. But it gave rise to pride and division. The law became a sort of division, a dividing wall that was saying, we're right and the riffraff outside are wrong. God's people used God's good law to separate themselves from the riffraff outside. But in actual fact, the law was locking them up and separating them from God. Thirdly, it hadn't worked spiritually. History also shows that the law was misused. It was given to people to draw, draw them to God in a loving relationship, but it got turned into a kind of religious spreadsheet with tick boxes. What God desired was the joyful love of their hearts. They turned the law into a checklist. Here's an interesting thought for you. I think it was Martin Luther who said this, um, Ten Commandments, the first one is 
you shall have no other gods before me. Martin Luther says, anyone who tries to keep the Ten Commandments as a way of earning favor with God, what are they relying on to achieve that? What they're trusting in is their own morality, which means they've broken the first one before they get to number two. The irony of misusing the law to earn favor with God actually creates the idolatry of self-reliance and self-worship. Fourthly, so it didn't work historically, socially, spiritually, neither did it work practically. You'll know this. One of the interesting things about rules is the fact that they just want to make us break them, don't they, so much? I remember when one of our children was little. I won't tell you which one. Jane had just cleaned a large patio door window. That gives you a clue because we haven't got one in our current house. (laughs) Sherlock. And the door's gleaming. And this particular child was just walking and stood up near the door and Jane said, don't touch the glass. This child looked right at Jane, big smile, and went. And smeared a greasy hand all down the newly polished glass. we do that. Paul says this elsewhere, that the very commandments that were designed to bring life actually brought death. The reason is that our hearts are so resistant to authority. It's as if by nature we're like rebels. We hate it when anyone tells us what to do. Don't tell me what to do. I can do it myself. Don't tell me what to do. We hate it, don't we? It offends us. We feel restricted. We feel stifled. The very hearing of a command makes us go, I wonder if I could break that one. It's just kind of the way we're wired, isn't it? I remember a dear friend who uh, found out that they had cancer. And one of the toughest decisions they had to make, the doctors suggested some treatment, but warned that the treatment came with a risk. It was possible that the treatment would deal with the tumour, but there was also a risk that it would wake up the tumour and make it even more aggressive. My friend decided to go with the treatment And within a matter of weeks was bedridden because the tumour had become more aggressive. The law, that's how it is. The law that was intended to bring life actually provokes our sinful nature and that springs into even greater life and defeats us. In summary then, the picture Paul is building up here is that the promise was always the way of salvation, 
but that the law complements the promise because it shuts us in like a prison and therefore points us to Jesus. You can see why the law and promise complement each other in the fact that you can't actually see the promise until and we, we can't see the promise until we see clearly what the law has done to us. I think the reverse is true though that we also can't really look at the law honestly, truly until we've been made safe by the promise. We look at the law a little bit and I'll tell you what I do, I go, well, I'm not as bad as them. And I'm sincere. That's got to count for something, hasn't it? Basically, I'm good at heart. I mean, I mean well. Those things might make me feel better. But none of them can actually unlock the door and get me out of the prison. Friends, the problem is not that the law is bad, but that it has no power to change our hearts. The law, in a sense, can only tell us what to do, but it won't give us any power to do it. One writer uses the analogy of a lion in a cage with all the bars there and there's a little lamb outside on the floor outside the cage the bars of the cage might provide a restraining function to stop the lion devouring the poor little lamb but I'll tell you this the bars won't stop the lion from wanting to eat the lamb will it? it prevents it but it can't change heart. So, because of our own sinful nature, it's as if the law has us on the floor with its foot on our throat. Actually, our own sin, Paul says, has us on the floor with its foot on our throat. We have no power to conquer ourselves or our sin and satisfy the law from inside this prison. I do love the fact that the law also has this babysitting function, though. The overall point here is that it's not ultimately negative. The law is designed to point us to Christ, who has the key to unlock the prison. We need Jesus to come and fight for us. We need him to come and wrestle sin. We need him to come and break its power and get its foot from off our throats. Paul's language here, friends, is revolutionary. He is asking them, what time is it? There are false teachers who are saying, you guys are under the law. You need to go back. 
and live under that law. Paul said, no, that's so last year. <laughs> Christ has come now. You used to be in slavery under that law. But now that Christ has come, you're not in that prison anymore. You're free. You're all sons. By faith in Christ. I did think about stopping there. That would surprise you, wouldn't it? But something has been bugging me all week. I was in too mad whether to say this, but I'm going to say it. It might work, it might not. Let me frame it this way. Come on. Go on. Let me frame it this way. What time is it now? In other words, how on earth does this, you, you get all Paul's argument here, but how does it apply to me, to you, today? I sounded like the Chuckle Brothers. Dear, how does it apply to us now, today? What time is it now for you, for us I think the thing that has been bugging me is this. That the problem with the Galatians, for the Galatians, is the opposite of what our problem is now. So I could preach this and teach this and go right over your heads because your issue, my issue in our modern culture, is not the same issue that they faced. They were being taught to live in slavery under the law. They were being taught that what they needed was more rules. Our modern culture is saying the exact opposite to that. What we need is less rules, is what our culture is saying. And the language of our culture is just as revolutionary as Paul's was then, our culture is claiming, the air that we breathe is claiming that our culture is marching forwards towards freedom. We're apparently leaving behind a restrictive, authoritarian past. We're smashing up traditions that have oppressed and marginalized people and we're marching forwards to utopia, freedom, tolerance. The answer, we're told, to the problems in our society is that we've tried to make people conform. That was all wrong. What we need to do is to let everyone choose their own pathway and not judge them. Now, of course, there's some truth to some of the things I've just said. Don't mistake me here. What I'm trying to point out is that in Galatia, the focus was on upholding past traditions. Now, for you and I... We're being taught that all of that stuff is rubbish and nonsense and we should get rid of it all. Our problem is the exact opposite to their problem. So I've, that's been bugging me all week. How am I going to preach this passage when their problem is different to ours? Do you know where we live in days where even... Christianity itself is now perceived to be a threat 
to social stability. It's a threat to the glorious future that we're meant to be marching towards. I think my point here is that as a race, as human beings, we are utterly confused. We, we know we have a problem, but our solutions to that problem are often contradictory. Sometimes, as in this case, we think we need more rules. Other times in history, we think we need less rules. Here's a thought that might help us to apply what Paul is teaching here. The problem's not the rules. The problem's us. I feel like both then and now, the assumption underlying these extremes is that our own human nature is way better than we think it is. We are big and capable and strong. We can do it. And conversely, God has become so small as to be utterly ridiculous. We are big in our own eyes. God is in the gutter in our own eyes. I think what Paul is saying to the Galatians here holds true now too. God is not our enemy. Our own sin is our enemy and actually God is the solution. Sin, our own sin, has its foot on our throats. Our problem is that we're in prison, but think that we're free. And whether we try to escape by having more rules or less rules, all we're really doing, actually, is rearranging the furniture in our cell. We're not actually getting out of prison. Paul is telling us that these extremes are both impossible while sin has us in its grip. I can't tell you how important verse 21 in chapter 3 is. It is pure genius. It is the gospel. It is the better, bigger story. When Paul asks, is the law opposed to the promise? He's contrasting authority and love, rules and freedom, and there's no culture in the history of the human race that can answer that question with a no. In this world, the law is always opposed to the promise. We always have to choose, don't we, between these two extremes. I've tried to show you that this is what happened in history. We either move towards having more rules or we move towards having less rules. Nothing in the world can reconcile these two extremes except the gospel. Paul says, is the law opposed to the promises of God? Everyone would cry, yes. Paul says, absolutely not.
the root of all of this is that we fail to see how good God is and has been and the real revolution that Christ has achieved. Let me... uh, Let me show you the real revolution that Paul is alluding to here is that only in Christ is God's good authority mightily upheld and love beautifully displayed at the same time. Chapter 4. And verse 4, into this world, when when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law so that we might receive adoption to sonship because you are his sons God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts the spirit who calls out Abba, Father so you're no longer a slave sin doesn't have its foot on your throat anymore you are God's child and since you are his child God has made you also an heir Let me give you three things just as we close. Christ upholds the law and love at the same time by keeping the law, the law of love. Paul says that God sent his son born of a woman and born under law. It speaks of the eternal nature of Jesus and the fact that he became gloriously human It also tells us that God is back to doing things himself rather than through mediators, in a sense. This is God coming. The gospel isn't done secondhand. God himself comes to achieve what we couldn't. And notice that Paul says Jesus was born under the law. Jesus actually is the personal and total embodiment of everything good about God's law. He himself, in his own person, is the very essence of complete and utter goodness. It's who he actually is. The whole law is summed up in two commands. We saw it in the video earlier. To love God and to love people. Jesus loved his Father to the end. And he loved people to the end. In a sense, for Jesus to fulfill the law perfectly, he had to be rejected, condemned, so that the full extent of his love, even for his enemies, would be gloriously visible. And his incredible law-keeping would be shown to all. Listen, if, if you look at the law 
as something you have to live up to, it's terrifying. But when you see that Jesus fulfilled it to the nth degree, it evokes admiration and worship of him. Don't you look at Jesus and go, wow! Jesus is the law in human flesh. Jesus is himself what the law demands. And the point of that is this. When you are united to Jesus by faith, the first thing that happens is that he gives you himself. You don't have a test to pass anymore. You have a perfect friend. His perfect life is your perfect life. Everything good and great and excellent and perfect and beautiful about him is all yours. Secondly, Christ upholds the law and love by killing our sin. Paul says here that Jesus entered the world so that he could redeem those who were under the law. Our sin would kill us. It has its foot on our throat. But instead, Jesus killed it. He killed it in the sense that it can't condemn us anymore. Because of Jesus, sin and the law can't condemn us. He took our place. Our failure to keep the law was placed on him. He's taken our guilt away. The demands of the law don't hang over us anymore. In Christ, we're forgiven and set free. We still struggle with sin. But its power, its deadly power over us has been broken by Christ. And thirdly, Christ upholds the law and love by empowering his people to do it. Did you notice in this passage that God did two sendings? We're told that God sent his son into the world. And he sent the spirit of his son, where? Into our hearts. What the law couldn't do. God does by sending the Spirit of Jesus into our hearts. This, I'll tell you what time it is, it's a new era altogether. The law of God isn't a spreadsheet over here anymore to tick boxes. The Spirit of His Son has come into our hearts and works within us from the inside. What time is it for you? Christ has come. If you trust in Jesus this afternoon, you're not a slave. You're not in prison anymore. You don't even need a babysitter anymore. You're all sons. You're all free. You're one in Christ. Let's pray, shall we?